be in Duluth with Kent and all of you. Thank you so much for coming out tonight. It's wonderful to have you here. I'm Carrie Miller, and we are on the road with Talking Volumes this spring. Tonight, we're at the College of St. Scholastica in Duluth with William Ken Kruger. And it is a pleasure to see so many of Kent's fans here in person. Did, uh, maybe they're your fans, Carrie. <laughs> maybe they're both. In 1998, readers met Cork O'Connor for the first time. The opening pages of Iron Lake take us deep into the northern woods in autumn with 14-year-old Cork, who is grieving the death of his father, and tagging along with Sam Wintermoon as they pursue an injured bear who has escaped a trap. We learn a lot in those opening pages about the man Cork O'Connor will be. We also see, as the series progresses, how Cork is being shaped by the singular geography of the North. You can smell the campfire smoke, breathe the scent of pine and water and cold night air in this scene from Kent's inaugural book. They'd passed out of reservation land and were now in what the white men called the Quetico Superior Wilderness. This part of the forest Sam had never been through, but he didn't seem worried. At sunset, they stopped and built a fire at the edge of a stream. Sam heated the wild rice, which they ate with the deer jerky. When the sky turned black and full of stars and the chill of the fall night crept over them, he made coffee and poured it into tin cups for them to drink. There are now 19 O'Connor novels and more to come. Kent also has a new standalone novel titled The River We Remember, which publishes in September. And we're going to talk about all of it. Please give William Ken Kruger a formal welcome to the stage. Carrie, I got to tell you, except for my wife, there's nobody I'd rather talk to than you. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Thank you. Are there are there details of writing that scene that I read and that first book, are they still vivid in some ways for you? Do you remember what it was like to pull that book together? That book took me four years to write. It was uh, the, the longest uh, period of time I, I have ever spent on a manuscript, a published manuscript, um, because I was learning, well, first of all, I was working full time, and, uh, and I was learning how to write um, a mystery, and really how to write a compelling story. Mostly what I remember from um, Iron Lake was everything I learned about writing, which still forms the foundation for pretty much all my, all my work today. Um, I, learned that, um, I learned that words are jewels, Carrie, and if you, if you set them on the page correctly, oh my God, do they sparkle. I learned about discipline in the writing of that book. Um, I write every day mm. as a result of working on Iron Lake. Um, I learned that if, if you're away from writing for a while, as I sometimes had to be, you know, you ought to miss it as you would a lover. Otherwise, you're in the wrong business. 
Um, and, uh, and I guess one of the important things I learned was is that writing is a little bit like sex. If you're not enjoying yourself, you're probably not doing it right. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. You mentioned it was the first published novel, which of course denotes or suggests that there were some unpublished manuscripts. Were they O'Connor oh, novels, no. or were you experimenting with what were you experimenting with in the un- unpublished phase? <laughs> so, uh, in nineteen, let's see, I think it was nineteen eighty-seven. Uh, I applied for a Bush Artist Fellowship. Are do. You're not in the arts business uh, exactly the same way that No, that I am. I'm not uh, familiar with the, that. The Bush Foundation, for those of you who don't know anything about this, the Bush Foundation, a very philanthropic organization in uh, Minnesota, back in the day used to have a program called a Bush Artist Fellowship. Mm-hmm. And the Bush Artist Fellowship was designed to give a writer um, a lot of time to do nothing but focus on your development as, as a writer. Um, if you got a Bush Artist Fellowship, you weren't allowed to work well, you had the fellowship, wow. and, the and boy, did they give you plenty of money to make sure that wasn't a problem. <laughs> right. uh, so I applied for and, uh, and, and got a Bush Artist Fellowship. So I spent a year and a half writing uh, my first complete uh, manuscript. It was for a novel titled The Demon Hunter. It was about the ultimate battle fought between good and evil in, I kid you not, the cornfields of Nebraska. <laughs> and it was just about as good as it sounds. <laughs> so here's the story. I, you know, I, uh, I sent that to a, an agent who, because I got a Bush Artist Fellowship, had been interested in seeing my work. Um, the letter she sent me back, uh, my interpretation of what she said in that letter was that basically <laughs> it was the worst piece of direct she'd ever read. <laughs> Come on, really? <laughs> it was uh, pretty bad. It, it, in fact, I was so defeated by that response that for almost two years I didn't write a word. Wow. And then um, I, I kind of went through a midlife crisis, pulled myself back together and thought, okay, this is what you want to do. You've got to give it a try again. And, uh, and that's when I decided, you know, I'd been trying to write, I'd been trying to write the great American novel. Um, not that the demon hunter sounds much like the great American novel. Um, but when I went through my midlife crisis, I thought, the hell with the great American novel. I want to write something somebody might actually want to read. So I looked around me to see what everybody reads. You know what everybody reads? Mysteries. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a genre whose appeal cuts across all socioeconomic levels, all uh, ethnic groups, all age demographics. So I set out to write a mystery, and Iron Lake was, after four years, was the result. I love, I love talking about the idea of how mysteries are often underestimated, right? And yeah. in some ways condescended on by some writers. <laughs> we were just talking we about were, that. We <laughs> were, yes. Thinking about a certain author who shall remain unnamed, who um, doesn't think highly of mysteries. You know, I, I do hear that, that, you know, mysteries are popular. They're, it's popular fiction. And I hear that term used in a pejorative way so often. Oh, he writes popular fiction. Right. I'd love someday to meet a writer who's, who's proud of writing unpopular <laughs> fiction, right? That's right? Nobody reads me, but I'm great, right? Yeah, no. yeah there you go. No one says that. The thing is about mysteries, and the, the genre is now, um, it crosses so many different 
reading experiences, right, and writing experiences. Uh, tell me about what you think is um, sp- is speaks to people about their own life experience across the spectrum of different of different mysteries. Why is it that we're drawn to these stories, whether it's you know Raymond Chandler sure. kind of crime novels, the kind of novels that you're writing. Agatha Christie. Right. Um, Yeah. Well, for one thing, um, mysteries are classic um, story constructs. Mm -hmm. In mysteries, typically speaking, there's a very clear beginning, a very clear middle, and a very clear end. There are times when I've read a book and I said, what the hell is going on? Where's the... But with a mystery, you know exactly where you are. You know exactly where you're going. And mysteries are, in in many ways, a comfort read because typically a mystery will begin with uh, some aspect of of the world or the society or the community um, being disrupted by a crime of some kind, very often a murder. And in the end, things are set right again. And so there's comfort in that. The other thing I love about mysteries these days is, you know, we used to have in, um, in, in literature what was called the social novel. Mm-hmm. You know, you think, uh, think Charles Dickens or think uh, Upton Sinclair. society. Yeah. yeah. And uh, we don't really have that anymore except in the mystery genre. If you take a look at so many modern mysteries now, we tackle the social issues within the context of a good, compelling story right. that, uh, that are often uh, not approached by uh, other authors. And I, I love that about the community that I'm a part of. You know, I just finished um, reading and then watching the, the film that was made from Women Talking. Have you, have you heard about nope. this? It's not a traditional mystery, and yet there is a mystery at the center of it, and there's a lot of social commentary and there's a crime, and there's a question about how this community of women will resolve this crime. That's a mystery. And I don't think anybody would take that novel and say, this doesn't meet the standard of what a great story is all about. I just think we are too rigid with this idea of what a mystery is for and what it does. Do you know, to, to offer, to couch a social issue within the context of a really good, compelling story, a really good, compelling mystery. The result so often is is that even uh, readers who don't necessarily agree with your point of view will still read the story and maybe have their eyes opened a little bit more. At least that's what I I hope. You know, I was curious, Kent, about how much you knew about the man that Cork O'Connor would become in writing the first novel and placing it in this geography that you placed it in. I mean, how much did you understand about who you were creating? (laughs) Okay, here's the evolution of Cork (laughs) O'Connor. Yeah, do tell. (laughs) And I love telling this story. So uh, when my wife and I um, moved, I'm, I'm not native to Minnesota. My wife and I didn't move here until uh, we were both about 30 years old so she could go to the U of M Law School. 
And uh, as soon as we moved here, or very shortly after we moved here, in the summer we began doing what everybody in the Twin Cities does in the summer. We began vacationing up north in the beautiful North Woods. We began spending a portion of every summer in the Arrowhead um, at a YMCA camp north of Ely, a place called Camp du Nord. How many of you out there know Camp du Nord? Yeah, I see lots of hands go up. Yeah, it's a great place. Um, And when I discovered that territory, I knew that's what I, this is what I want to write about. I had in mind, even before that, though, a guy that I might want to write about. I didn't know what I was going to do with him. But in the beginning, the the seed of Cork O'Connor was this. I knew I wanted to write about a guy who was going to be so resilient that no matter how far life pushed him down, he would always bob back to the surface and his name would be Cork. (laughs) Swear to God. Oh my gosh, that is so less poetic than I thought it would be. Now, I told that to an audience. I told that to an audience not too long ago, and some wise guy in the audience said, "Why didn't you just call him Bob?" <laughs> so that was the seed of Cork. Um, but but Cork then really uh, grew in my thinking. Um, so here's what I often tell audiences. When you're a fiction writer, what is it you're looking for? You're looking for conflict, Mm -hmm. because it's conflict that drives great stories. What is it that drives Romeo and Juliet? It's the conflict between those two powerful families, the Montagues and the Capulets, in which our star-crossed lovers find themselves caught. Think about Moby Dick, Ahab and that white whale. Conflict, conflict, conflict. When I looked at the North Country, that's what I saw. Conflict in this wonderfully rugged landscape up here in the Arrowhead. Conflict in the kind of weather that, uh, that we get up here, and uh, certainly conflict in the two dominant cultures, Native and Euro, that we're trying to live together, uh, often not doing a, a particularly good job of it. Um, but when I thought more specifically about the issue of conflict, I, I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to create a character in who he was would mirror the conflict in those two cultures, White and Ojibwe. So I knew Cork was going to be of mixed heritage. I knew part of him would be uh, uh, Anishinaabe, uh, and then I had to figure out what his Euro history ancestry would be. And, you know, in the North Country, if you're of uh, mixed heritage, you could be Ojibwe, uh, Swede, Ojibwe, mm, Finn, right. Ojibwe, Scottish, Scottish yeah. Ojibwe, Russian, you name it, for a variety of reasons. I decided to make him Ojibwe, um, Irish, and Cork then very naturally became Corcoran O'Connor. I made him a family man because I'm a family man. He's married to a blonde attorney. I was. I am married to a blonde attorney. <laughs> I, Cork has kids. I have kids, and so it was easy for me then to invest a lot of who I am in the character of O'Connor. One of the interesting things that you do with those opening pages of the first novel is Cork, the young Cork, is in the forest. He's in the wilderness, and he's hearing this fable, this myth about an ogre in the forest uh, from his friend Sam Wintermoon who knows that the boy is grieving the death of his father and I thought that was an interesting choice and in some ways Cork's appreciation for mythology for the, the folklore right of this landscape that he lives in of the people that he's interacting with I think remains true um, to the character that he is today. And I wondered how much you 
that was deliberate about the way to start that and to introduce this element of his character early on? Or did you just like the idea that he'd be hearing a, (laughs) you know, a, a myth around the fire, a story? I first heard the story of the Wendigo when I was a Boy Scout in Ohio. Did you? It's a very uh, um, pervasive myth in Native uh, cultures. Um, And I had kind of forgotten about it until I began doing the research for the the O'Connor novels. I began reading about uh, Ojibwe myths and stumbled again again across the Wendigo. And uh, it's such a wonderful myth in what it suggests about human nature you that I decided... You should relate it, if you will. So, uh, for those of you who don't know the myth of the Wendigo, uh, the Wendigo is a, um, a cannibal giant monster with a heart of ice, insatiably hungry for human flesh. Um, there is only one way in the Ojibwe myth to defeat a Wendigo, and that's to become a Wendigo yourself. And there is magic that will help you achieve that. The problem is, is that once you have defeated the Wendigo, someone has to be ready with hot tallow <laughs> for you to swallow to melt that heart of ice and melt you back down to the size of normal men. So, you know, it's a myth about greed and how right. if we buy into greed, we even if we want to fight it, we are at risk ourselves. It's just this wonderfully wise um, mythology. And so I decided to include it in the Cork O'Connor story there. And the other thing is, is that once you begin to um, investigate the indigenous culture, whether it's the Ojibwe or whether it's the uh, Dakota or whoever, um, you begin to understand how tightly woven the mythology of that culture is in basically everything about the culture. Um, so it became, it became very difficult for me to write a Cork O'Connor story without often um, referring to or including myths. I, I have taken, I have not taken whole cloth myths from the Ojibwe. I don't want to trespass on their culture. Mm. But I have created myths that sound very Ojibwe-like and use those in the stories. I love the the contrast and maybe sometimes the conflict of the two elements of Cork's nature, which is to appreciate and in some cases love this mythology, want to believe in some ways in the magic, and then this other side of his personality that's very, I mean, the law enforcer part of his personality. In some ways, the appreciation for the science of, of evidence, right? And pursuing a, the evidence where it will go. And I think that's something that continues to make him mysterious in some ways and interesting. You know, I don't think he's that much different from most of us. Most of us are fine with scientific evidence. We understand that. We like the scientific approach to things. And yet there is a part of us that, that loves to embrace that which is, um, remains a mystery. Um, you can't explain it. 
And I, I love the fact that that's, there's so much of that around us. And, and that's Cork. I mean, and, it, and it's Cork in, in maybe in a larger way simply because of his relationship, particularly with Henry Malou, right. who is constantly reminding him that there's more out there in the, in the force than you're ever going to be able to understand. Right. I mean, he, he maintains and is often reminded, as you note, of the mystery of the universe and the mystery of the world around him, the very tactile world. Do you know, I love him. Um, I love the uh, the very poetic interpretation of Kichimanadu, which is um, um, the the great spirit mm. in Ojibwe culture. But I love the interpretation, the great mystery. So many of my friends in the Native community will either refer to the creator or the great mystery. And a acceptance that everything will not be explained, right? Which is at the core of any kind of faith, I think. That you don't need, that doubt is a key part of faith, isn't it? I think Cork embraces that as Mm -hmm. people of faith do. Mm -hmm. So did you grow up in, in, uh, what kind of a church did you grow up in, or any church? I grew up Episcopalian. Then when I left high school, I decided it was time to abandon my spiritual journey. Um, I graduated in 1969. I graduated into a world that was dominated, Carrie, by three things, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. (laughs) A really difficult combination for the spiritual journey to compete with. Mm. So so I thought I had abandoned my spiritual journey uh, when I left high school. But, uh, but when I began to write the Cork O'Connor series, I saw spiritual questions begin to bubble up in the, in the stories that I created. Mm. Um, this, the spiritual journey is something that comes really naturally for Cork O'Connor because he's a man with a foot in two different spiritual traditions, his white Catholicism, his Irish Catholic, and his Ojibwe spirituality. So very often in the stories, he's trying to figure out where his unique spiritual path lies. What is his relationship with God or with the great mystery? And that's been an issue for me my whole life. Um, so when I began to understand that I hadn't really abandoned the spiritual journey or it had not abandoned me, um, I began to embrace more more deeply the idea that we're all on a spiritual journey. And uh, I am now Methodist. I married a Presbyterian, and and Methodism was our negotiation. (laughs) Um, And if you were to ask me what is the... um, what is all the doctrine in in Methodism about? I probably couldn't tell you. I just know that it's a group of people who believe in really working hard to do good for the world, and uh, and I like sharing my spiritual journey with them. It sounds like you felt the tug of, and maybe it isn't the rituals. What what was it? I mean, as you as you felt like you were moving away from the practice of that Episcopalian upbringing. What was it, do you think, that kept kind of tugging at you? What did you miss? Do you know, I'm going to, I'm going to credit my desire to write about the Ojibwe with maybe helping me back onto the spiritual path. Because you can't 
begin to understand, at least in my experience, uh, uh, Native people, um, unless you begin to understand their embrace of the spirituality that is involved in all creation, the idea that spirit runs through everything that connects us all. And, uh, and when I began to really read more and more about that and began to th- cause me to begin to think about it a whole lot, it, it actually, Carrie, became a very easy thing for me to embrace. I mean, that's such a simple way to approach um, the idea, not religion, this is, we're not right. talking religion here. We're just talking about the idea of embracing the spirituality that is in all of us, that connects all of us. We are all brothers and sisters. We are all part of this great heart of the universe. Um, so, have I converted you? <laughs> no. As, as you're describing that, I'm thinking, and the church of the natural world, right? Which is something that Cork is committed to and that I think I hear you saying for yourself. Is that, I like that. Is that right? Yeah, I like okay. that. Um, I want to ask you also about landscape and how that influences the, the elements of Quark's character and how it influences the way you conceive of new stories to tell about him. Um, I was re- reading something that uh, the writer Elizabeth George, who created those mm-hmm. very successful Lindley series. Have yeah. you ever read any of those novels, um, the Lindley Her books? first novel, a great, I can't remember the title. Uh, yeah, yeah, it goes back it. a ways, yeah. right. Um, and they're set in Britain. But um, she says in this book about writing called Right Away, I consider the land itself. I ask myself, what grows upon it and what does not. I note its shape and its texture. I note the marks that succeeding cultures have left upon it. You know, I see that in your descriptions of the land that Cork and his community and fellow citizens live on. I see you considering who's been here, who will be here, what kind of marks both destructive and and positive that they leave. Talk to me a little bit about the integration of the landscape and the story and the character. Sure, I write profoundly out of a sense of place. Um, I work very hard to ground my reader in every scene, in uh, in every um, locality where a scene is set. Um, every good writer that I know works hard at being a sensual writer, bringing in as many senses as you can. So it's not just uh, letting the reader know what what you see, it's what do you hear, what's the music that you hear, Um, what's the taste and and what's the smell, what's the texture, Mm. bringing as many senses as you can. That's pretty much basic, basic writing. Um, When I used to teach writing, I, I taught place as character. Hmm. Place is one of the most important and versatile characters in any story. Think of place like you would think, uh, create a place as you would create a character. Every character has a unique face. Every landscape has a unique face. Sometimes it's beautiful, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it it began beautiful and it's been scarred Hmm. in many ways, as you were just uh, indicating. Um place has a voice. 
You know, if you put somebody in the great north woods, blindfolded, what they hear there is going to be an entirely different kind of voice than if you put them in uh, Boston mm, yeah. or Arizona. Listen to the voice. Um, character has, uh, just as a woman who wears cologne or perfume, a place has a fragrance and a smell that you... Um, that tells you so much about that place. Place has a culture. It has a history. Um, so I um, encourage my students to think when you are talking about creating a sense of place, think about creating them in the same way that you would a, a human character in your story. And then think about how you're going to use sense of place. Place is motivation. So many of the things that occur in my story, in my stories, come directly out of the kinds of conflicts, the kinds of issues um, that arise out of the the great north country. Um, Place is atmosphere. You use sense of place. One of the things I love about northern Minnesota is I use it to heighten suspense. You know, how many of you have ever been out in the woods? I mean, really out in the woods on a moonless night. You can't see a thing. God only knows what's lurking out there in the dark, you know? So, so I use it to create atmosphere. Or a snowstorm, you know? You can create such wonderful suspense using all of the natural elements that are available to you. Um, so I love working at creating. You know, one of my f- uh, when I began to write mysteries... I studied some of the great mystery writers, particularly a guy named Tony Hillerman, who, for those of you who don't know Hillerman... New Mexico. Yeah, he was an icon in the mystery genre. He wrote a series that was set in the Four Corners area of the Southwest and dealt dealt significantly with the culture uh, of the Navajo. And uh, I had the the great good fortune of hearing his uh, editor, a guy named Eamon Dolans, talk once. And in his speaking about Hillerman, uh, Dolans threw out this phrase. He said, "What what Tony writes is domestica exotica. And what he meant by that was Hillerman writes about a place that is um, set inside the confines, uh, the um, geographic confines of the United States, Mm -hmm. so it's domestic, but it's about a place that is unique to people, exotic to them. And, and what T- Hillerman tried to accomplish is to give people such a profound sense of place that when they had finished one of their novels, it was as if they had been there. And that's exactly what I try to do in Minnesota. Maybe the one element, and I'm sure he did this too, but the one element that I, I work very hard at, at the sense of uh, that I try to give my landscapes is an understanding by the reader of how much I love this place. I want my love of Minnesota to be in every line I write. It, you're also a fan of James Lee Burks, right? Oh, yeah. I am too. Dark, 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 but such a beautiful writer. Has anyone found more ways to describe rain on the bayou than <laughs> James Lee Burke? I mean, he's found 200 different descriptions, <laughs> and they all... I just started uh, his book, The Jealous Kind. They all sound genuine. He never sounds like he's reaching for a new way, and they're spare, 
I mean, the, the descriptions are spare about what it's like to live on the bayou, which really fits this description that you've just given us from Hillerman's editor. You feel like you have been there, and it's a place I don't know that I ever would experience if I wasn't reading his novels. You know, those writers whose work I admire most are those who do write profoundly out of sense of place. I right. so admire that. Would you read a little bit from the very first novel? Oh, yeah. Um, tell us what you've... I asked Kent if he would do this. Tell us what you chose. Is it the, is it the first pages? No. Okay. Tell us about the scene. Well, as uh, Carrie indicated in the introduction uh, this evening, um, Iron Lake opens with a, the hunt for a, a wounded black bear. Uh, Court goes on a hunt with Sam Wintermoon, and it's really, it's really a journey of healing for Cork, understanding how to, how to begin to heal. So it begins with that prologue, but the first chapter then launches into... One of the things that I wanted to accomplish in Iron Lake was this. I had... Uh, I didn't understand winter until I moved to Minnesota. <laughs> <laughs> right. And after I had experienced my first true, legendary Minnesota winter, oh, my God, did I want to share that knowledge with the world. <laughs> so uh, so the, the opening chapter of Iron Lake begins with this blizzard, this uh, huge snowstorm in northern Minnesota, in which a paper boy goes missing. So that's the backdrop for this. But I'm going to read from Chapter 7, just a, a very brief... Look how yellowed the pages are of that novel. It's I love that. How old is it? Uh, 98, so 25 years. Okay. Traditionally, the Anishinaabeg were a quiet people. Before the whites came, they lived in the silence of great woods, and more often than not, the voices they heard were not human. The wind spoke. The water sang. All sound had purpose. When an Anishinaabe approached the wigwam of another, he respectfully made noise to announce his coming. Thunder, therefore, was the respectful way of the storm in announcing its approach. Spirit and purpose in all things. For all creation, respect. The storm that bent the pine trees and the tamaracks, that drove the snowplows from the roads and froze and snapped the power lines, was not an angry spirit. In its passage, it created chaos, not because of anger, but because it was so vast and powerful, and those things it touched, especially those things human, were so small in comparison. In a way, it was like the bear that Cork had once hunted with Sam Wintermoon, huge and oblivious. If the storm, in fact, was responsible for the disappearance of the boy, Cork knew it was not a thing done maliciously. In his experience, only people acted out of pure malice.
Tell us the name of that song. What, uh, what's the story of that? Sure. So that's um, two tunes that I learned from Martin Hayes. Um, the first one's called Patty Fahey's Jig, and the second one is Brennan's Reel. And um, so I play mostly by ear. So if I hear most Irish tunes are set in a set, and it's a traditional set, but being American, um, I don't go with the tradition <laughs> all the time. And I just like the way things sound together, so I'll hear things and just want to put them together. And blend them together. And blend them together, yeah. and Kyle here knows more about theory than I do, so he goes, oh, those actually do go together. <laughs> That's <laughs> so, beautiful. Yeah. Thank you very much yeah. for yeah. being here. Thank you. Good to have you here. You're listening to Talking Volumes at the College of St. Scholastica in Duluth. We're here with William Kent Kruger, whose novel Fox Creek was published in 2022. His new book, The River We Remember, is out in September. We're going to talk about that, too, in a bit. Um, You know, hearing that music, uh, I was thinking about how you've imprinted Cork O'Connor... And, and the, some of the other characters that are important in his life with this sense of loneliness, which is what... And there's something about fiddle music that makes me think about that. Um, does that does that sound right to you, or was is that an, an individual reader's interpretation? Do you know, it's kind of a trope of the mystery genre to have uh, the righteous protagonist... Um, often out there on his own, seeking justice, mm-hmm. maybe outside the law, if that's what what um, is called for. And so, Cork, there's some of that in Cork, but Cork is so much more than that. Um, Cork is ogijida, which is an Ojibwe word. It's a, a strict interpretation would be warrior, Mm-hmm. But my friends in the Ojibwe community have told me that another interpretation of Ogijita is one who stands between evil and his people. So Cork um, is born to this position that it's not a comfortable place for him to be mm-hmm. because he's a man who he's a, a man of deep spiritual um, roots, and he's also a man who has to do things that he understands are brutal, but that's what's required of him to protect the people that he loves. 
you just said he's born to this. Is that how you think of it? Yeah, I think that that's what Cork has come to. In fact, Henry Malou has tried to guide him there. You can't escape who you are. This is who you were born to be. I was born to be a storyteller, <laughs> <laughs> Carrie. Yeah. I can't escape my, my fate here. Right. Um, I don't know if it's true that people are born to be things, but certainly Henry Malou has indicated that to Cork. And uh, it's been a kind of... Um, it's been an easy way for me to explain things sometimes, you know? You know, that always interests me, though, in literary characters as to whether if you put this character in a different situation with different circumstances, would they display the nobility, the warrior side, the integrity? Could they be corrupted? Um, but I think what I hear you saying is know this essential nature of Cork would have emerged no matter what circumstances that he found himself in. Is that right? But that's what makes great stories, is, is that you present your protagonist with that kind of challenge, your hero with that kind of challenge. Um, are you going to abide by what the gods tell you you're supposed to do, or are you going to make a different choice? Are you going to um, behave according to what apparently is your place in, in life, or are you not? And that's, that provides a wonderful source of conflict in a story. How is this character, when he isn't he or, or she, are in conflict with themselves, mm -hmm. who's going to win? Mm -hmm. and, and I love doing that in a story. In fact, that's maybe one of the most interesting sources of conflict in any story. Uh, the person somewhat at war or in conflict with their own nature... Is that what you mean? That's what I mean. Or knowing what they ought to do, what everything tells them they should do, versus the devil on their shoulder saying, mm -hmm. no, wait a minute, maybe there's another thing, another way to look at this. Or maybe there's an easier way Sometimes to do this. Sometimes it's an easier, mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Did you know from the beginning it was going to be a series? <laughs> no, no writer I know who has a long-running series thought the first book was going to be the beginning of a long-running series. We were just trying to write something that was good enough to get published. <laughs> in, in, my own, in my own case, um, as I was approaching maybe three-quarters of the way through the creation of the manuscript, I realized I was creating relationships that were so complex I wasn't going to be able to wrap them up neatly at the end of Iron Lake. And I thought, okay, where do I want all of these people to be in their lives? And when I, I kind of thought that through, I thought, ooh, it's going to take a while to, really to get them there. They're dealing with a lot of crap right now. How do I get them to the other side of this? And I thought, well, it's probably going to take a couple of more books. And in fact, it did. If you looked at the first three books in the Cork O'Connor series, Iron Lake, Boundary Waters, and Purgatory Ridge, you see that there is a story arc involved mm -hmm. in those three. We take Cork in Iron Lake. His marriage is uh, about to dissolve. And across the course of the other two books... Um, his marriage comes back, his, the recommitment uh, on the part of him and his wife um, bring them all back together again, the place I wanted them to be. So I thought, okay, three books. I got to the end of Purgatory Ridge. Um, I found that I had readers who really liked my stuff. 
and a publisher who was willing to pay for for more of these books. So uh, <laughs> I guess I had a series going. <laughs> Got it. You know, there, the story goes, you tell me whether this is true, that you undertook a lot of the touring and the publicity for the initial books yourself. Yeah. You did something that a lot of writers won't do. I, or not, can't do, I guess. Yeah, I think maybe can't or even aren't aware that they ought to do. I had a lot of good advice before I published um, from established writers about, okay, how do I approach this? And the best piece of advice I got was make friends with the booksellers. And so with my advance on Iron Lake, I poured that into a national tour that I paid for myself. I set up the, all of the signings. Um, did you really? You did, did. You set them up yourself? Cold calls wow, uh, across you. the country. And so I hit... Back then, there were just an enormous number of specialty bookstores, mystery bookstores across the country. They, so many of them have vanished now. But back then, there were lots of mystery bookstores across the country. So I set up a tour all the way across the country hitting mystery bookstores from uh, New York all the way out to California and created relationships that have been so important to me uh, across all of these years. So, yeah, it was a a tremendously worthwhile investment. You know what strikes me about that is the humility of that, too. I mean, you were going out to bookstores. It was your very first or second book. You might show up and there would be five people there. Oh, Carrie, there were so many times when I set up an event, a signing at a store hours away from my house, and I would drive all the way out there. And when I got there, the only ones present at that signing were me and the bookseller and the bookseller's cat. (laughs) For real? For real. (laughs) (laughs) That doesn't happen anymore. And every writer has those kinds of stories. It just goes with the business. But not every writer, I think, will pour what their own their own resources and maybe their own just firm conviction into the idea that this is what it's going to take to for me to live this life as a writer. I think some you know the publisher will say to some writers, "You know this, we're sending you on a three city tour that's it." And most writers have to be content Oh, you're with lucky that. if you go on a three-city tour anymore. These days, yeah. right? Do you think you could do what you did back then today? Or, or maybe you would have to because of the way publishing has changed. What do you think? Well, some of the prevailing wisdom is, is that now with the, the Internet, yeah. with Zooms and, and all of the virtual platforms for an event, you don't need to do that anymore. And I so disagree. Again, I go back to the relationship that you create with booksellers. Booksellers, if they like your work, are going to sell you before you get there. They'll sell you while you're there, and they'll sell you after you leave. And um, and so, with every every time I have stopped at a store over the years, the people there have grown and grown and grown. So, uh, with the last couple of book tours, we you know we've packed them in. They can't. There's not enough room for them. Um, and it did begin with a leap of faith. You're absolutely right. I just hoped this was the right route to go. I didn't know. You know, we all in the, in the beginning do the scattergun thing. You try everything you can possibly try. And for me, the, the tour did the trick. Mm-hmm. Um, 
the first cold splash of reality that every writer gets is the realization that your publisher, at least in the beginning, is really not going to help you out very much. <laughs> it's really right. up to you. You have to create your own website and it? all your materials and all of that stuff. And the, the publisher, in truth, really only steps in when you hit the point where you really don't need them anymore. <laughs> <You know? laughs> That's exactly right. So, yeah. Catch 22. I mean, I, I, I'm interested in your observation on this because... You get a book like one of the big books of the year, Age of Vice, right, by Deepti Kapoor. I interviewed her. A lot of people interviewed her. The book is fantastic. But she doesn't need all the resources that the publishers, and yet the publishers are spending all kinds of money to publicize that book. It's a real um, upside-down kind of business model, and yet it seems that the publishers coming out of COVID are even more committed to only a few, and it's the big names. Yeah, what it you, is. It's what, the people who your, don't really need it. You're right. absolutely right. So what do aspiring or mid-list writers do, do you think? And I'm sure that a lot of them come to you for advice. Yeah, the, my first piece of advice always for young writers is this. Marry somebody with a good job. <laughs> that is brilliant. <laughs> That is brilliant. Because it's going to support you while it's going to take a while, or at least you know you have some help in all of that. Because it's going to take a while before you get to the point where you really can um, support yourself or your family significantly with your writing. You have to be really patient and and build Uh, that meteoric instant success thing is so rare. And publishing has become more and more difficult over the years for this reason. It used to be that uh, the, the profit margin for publishers really wasn't that great. Right. But as, as companies bought, publishing companies, and the companies that bought them weren't all about the written word, the bottom line became money. So how many books can you sell? Um, and so... The publishers used to grow writers if you began, right. if you were really a fine writer, but you had a smaller audience, with each book, it allowed you to grow. Okay, we're going to keep, we'll buy the next one, because you'll know, they just don't do that anymore. You either make it or you don't. You have just a, a brief window in order to prove yourself. And it's really a, a, a tragedy for literature. It's a tragedy for readers everywhere. Publishers want to stick with what they believe will work. What they believe readers want. Yeah. So always James Patterson, James Patterson, James Patterson. Even though the guy doesn't even write his books anymore. Don't get me started on James Patterson. James Patterson, if you're listening, I'm sorry, God. (laughs) (laughs) He's not, I'm sure. He's cranking out or hiring more people to crank out his books. Um, This leads me then to talk to you a little bit about the standalone novels. Uh, Tell me when you first conceived of the idea that it could be interesting to step aside from the series and and I assume you had something you wanted to say that you couldn't say in the series what was that yeah that's exactly it my first standalone novel well actually it was my second stand my first standalone novel was a a political thriller called the devil's bed it was the fourth book I published I wanted to write a thriller rather than a mystery Uh wanted to see what that was like um, let's see. A show of hands. How many out there in the audience have ever read The Devil's Bed? Yeah, the three of you whose oh, hands went look up. Look at this. Yeah. There are people. Yeah. They're the only ones in the entire universe who did read. 
The devil's bed. It's it sold really really horribly. They liked it. They say, <laughs> "Yep, okay." Yeah, I thought it was a pretty good uh, thriller too, but people didn't buy it because it wasn't a Cork O'Connor novel. Oh, which is one of the pitfalls oh, of writing a popular series. But I had uh, I had other things I wanted to say. I, I Ordinary Grace I wrote for two reasons. I, I wanted I wanted to write a story that would allow me to explore more deeply the the question of the importance of the spiritual journey in our lives. And although I was able to explore that to a certain extent in the Cork O'Connor mm-hmm. series, I was limited. And I wanted to write a story that was more expansive in what it would allow me to do and how it would allow me to do that. Um, and the other reason was is that I, I'd been looking for a story for a while that would allow me to go back and recall an important period in my own life, the summer I was 13 years old. I don't know what being 13 years old is like for women. Hellish. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I wouldn't necessarily call it hellish for guys, <laughs> but it's certainly a difficult time. You know, we're, we're standing in that threshold to our adulthood, our manhood. Um, and, uh, and I wanted to go back and recall that that summer I was 13 years old and evoke it in such a way that I could use bits and pieces of my own life to create the story I was going to tell. So the Drum family at the heart of Ordinary Grace is basically my family. The town of New Bremen that I created for the story is really so like the small Midwestern towns where I spent my adolescence. I pulled bits and pieces of places that were important to me um, when I was a, a young teenager and put them right in that story. Um, and I wanted to write it in such a way that even readers who were born decades later could read this book and know what it was like to be a 13-year-old boy in a small Midwestern town in the summer of 1961. And, um, and I wrote it knowing... Actually, I pitched that project to my publisher and they didn't want it. Really? Yeah, they called me out to New York City in kind wow. of a panic and set me down and said, Kent, we only want Cork O'Connor novels from Whoa. you. Yeah. How myopic of them. Well, right? boy, did they realize that later that, on. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Right. So, uh, so I, I composed it across three years without a contract um, because it was a story I had to write. And its success, you know, won a lot of awards when it came out. It's been translated into more than two dozen foreign languages. So far, it's sold over a million copies. Oh, my and the gosh. Success, wow. Well, thanks. That is great. And so the success of Ordinary Grace has allowed me then to, to uh, paint on larger canvases. It allowed me to do this tender land. Right. It certainly has allowed me to do the river we remember. little applause there for this tender land, too. Yes. Um, Thanks, folks. So you are going to read a, uh, the prologue from... Well, let's see the book. I haven't even seen the... Oh, I don't have it's a, a gorgeous book. I don't have book. the advanced reader's copy yet, oh. Kent. You, if you want to take this one with you when I you go tonight, it's yours. You, you, you can't really see this, folks, but it's one of the most gorgeous covers uh, I have ever had. And I actually, my agent and I had a pretty big hand in creating this cover because we kept rejecting everything they sent what, us. What were they sending you and what did you imagine? Well, they were sending us crap. Uh, <laughs> And then they sent us not crap, <laughs> and then we had uh, we had a couple of suggestions to enhance the image that they gave us, and the the result was this wonderfully collaborative effort with the creative people, the arts people at Simon and Schuster. I love this cover. There's an inside 
uh, flap to it, is there? Ah, okay. Oh, I thought maybe sometimes you get that double cover and... Oh, uh, yeah. Only when you're Stephen King. Okay, yeah. got it. Um, if you will, I know you're going to be touring and talking a lot about this novel, but tell me, to go back to what we were talking about before, what it is you wanted to say that you've put into this. I consider this a companion novel to Ordinary Grace in this Tenderland for two reasons. Like those two novels, it's set in southern Minnesota rather than the northern Minnesota My Cork O'Connor series. And like those two uh, novels, it's set in an earlier time. Ordinary Grace was the summer of uh, 1961. This Tenderland was the summer of 1932. The River We Remember takes place in the summer of 1958. It takes place in, uh, in a county in southern Minnesota, the fictional Black Earth County. (laughs) (laughs) Not saying any more about that. (laughs) It opens on uh, on Memorial Day, 1958, um, when the county's leading citizen, a man named Jimmy Quinn, is found floating in the Alabaster River, nearly naked, dead from a shotgun blast. In many ways, it's a straightforward mystery because the question at the heart of the story is, who killed Jimmy Quinn? But Carrie, it's about a whole lot more than that. I touched very briefly, or I touched not deeply enough in Ordinary Grace on men who were like my father, veterans of World War II or the Korean conflict, My father graduated from high school at 18 and enlisted in the service and marched off to fight in the war in Europe. He came back several years later, a man wounded deeply in body and in spirit. And he was so like the the fathers of my friends, men who had fought in in World War II or or Korea. And these guys just went away. Kids, they, they were like 18 years old, Carrie. So many of them not even shaving yet. And they came back men deeply wounded by the horrors that they had seen and the horrors that they had been a part of. And one of the questions that has, I've been asking myself all my life is how did these men heal from those deep wounds? And what about the people they left behind? Their mothers, their wives, their sisters, their fathers, people who were praying for them deeply while they were gone and maybe who lost them in the end. How did they heal? How did all of these people heal? And that's really what the river we remember is about. Would you like me to read the prologue? I would. Yes, please. Oh, boy, do I love this prologue. So this is how I bring readers into the river we remember. The Alabaster River cuts diagonally across Black Earth County, Minnesota, a crooked course like a long crack in a china plate. Flowing out of Sioux Lake, it runs 70 miles before crossing the border into Iowa, south of Jewell, the county seat. It's a lovely river, filled with water that's only slightly silted, making it the color of weak tea. Most folks who've grown up in Black Earth County have swum in the river, fished its pools, picnicked on its banks. Except in spring, when it's prone to flooding, they think of it as an old friend. On quiet nights when the moon is full or nearly so, and the surface of the alabaster is mirror still and glows pure white in the dark bottom land, to stand on a hillside and look down at this river is to fall in love. With people we fall in love too easily, it seems, 
and too easily fall out of love. But with the land it's different. We abide much. We can pour our sweat and blood, our very hearts into a piece of earth, and get nothing in return but fields of hail-crushed soybean plants, or drought-withered corn stalks, or fodder for a plague of locusts. And still we love this place enough to die for it, or kill. In Black Earth County, people understand these things. If you visit the alabaster at sunrise or sunset, you're likely to see the sudden small explosions of water where fish are feeding. Although there are many kinds of fish who make the alabaster their home, the most aggressive are channel catfish. They're mudsuckers, bottom feeders, river vultures, the worst kind of scavengers. Channel cats will eat anything. This is the story of how they came to eat Jimmy Quinn. Oh, really? oh my gosh.
you. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's sure to put a smile on your face. I know. That was great. I think we have some microphones in the audience. Yes, we have. Uh, we're going to bring the lights up, and you're welcome to ask questions. So do you love that prologue because you love that last line about the fish eating the body? Is that, it's is a that great it? last line. <laughs> <laughs> but I like it because the, uh, the prologue sets up the place, that right. sense of place and beautiful. time. Beautiful. That's really beautiful. All right, questions for Kent. Hi. Uh, oh, good. Where? where? <coughs> me. I um, looked on a map because I was a geography major in college, and your aurora does not match where the real aurora is. <laughs> and I just wanted to ask you why. Uh, the aurora in my book is not the real aurora. For those of you who know the real aurora of Minnesota, here's the, here's the story. When I sold that manuscript to my publisher, the town was not called Aurora. It was called Wendigo. Um, in fact, the novel was called Wendigo. And for reasons I still find a little inexplicable, my publisher didn't like the title, nor did they like the name of the town. So they asked me to change both. So I gave the, uh, the novel the title Iron Lake. And I thought long and hard about renaming the town. What did I want to name this Northwoods town? I wanted something that for me was evocative of the North Country. And Aurora did it. But there was already a real Aurora up there. So I called up my editor and I said, Dave, uh, I, I want to name my town Aurora, but there's already a real Aurora up there, not very far from where I'm thinking my Aurora is. Can I do that? And uh, there was this uh, kind of pregnant pause on the other end. And Dave said, well, as long as you don't get a sued. Um, <laughs> so I went ahead and named it Aurora. My Aurora is an amalgam of all of the, uh, so many of the elements of the Northwoods towns that I have come to know and love over the years, because I didn't want you to be able to say it's Ely or it's Babbitt or it's Virginia or it's someplace. Um, but shortly after the book came out, I got an email that went something like this. Dear Mr. Kruger, greetings from the real Aurora, Minnesota. It was from the librarians there, and they said, uh, we've got your book, and we think you did a great job. So I had a, an opportunity not long after that to go up and visit Aurora, the real Aurora, and talk with the librarians. And at one point, uh, the head of the library went in and to the stacks and came out with a copy of Iron Lake. And she said, when any of our patrons check this book out and come back, they always say, we want to live in this Aurora. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Question right over there. When you start a story, uh, how much do you know about where it's going to go? Or does it lead you along the path as you're, as you're writing? Yeah, it depends on the kind of story I'm writing. If I'm writing a story in the Cork O'Connor series, those are all essentially mysteries. And a mystery is a very tightly woven fabric of storytelling. Everything depends so significantly on everything else. And, uh, and I think that the success of a mystery depends largely on the timing of the reveals. When do you give the reader the clues that are going to be necessary for solving the mystery at the heart of the story? So typically when I write a Cork O'Connor novel, I'll think that story through as completely as I can before I ever put my fingers to the keyboard. At the end of that thinking process, which can take weeks or sometimes even months, I know how the story begins, I know how it ends, I know who did what to whom and why. I know the themes I want to weave through the story. But for my standalones, Ordinary Grace and This Tender Land in particular, I 
I wanted to, I wanted to approach the work in a different way. For this reason, a mystery is an intellectual construct. It's a puzzle that you create in your head and you put all the pieces together, working very hard to make sure that there are no gaps, everything fits very neatly. Ordinary grace in this tender land in particular didn't come from my head, they came from my heart. And I wanted a process that would allow me to make, make, it, make the reader feel that I was telling them the story from my heart. So going into the writing of those two novels, I had really no idea where I was going to go. I just knew a few salient elements that I wanted to include in the story. And I let the stories reveal themselves to me. And I have to tell you, honestly, those were two of the easiest manuscripts I have ever composed. Wow. Question right up there. You, you talked earlier about um, constructing Corcoran O'Connor because of the conflict between his heritage. Um, you give us a lot of information about the Ashinabi. How do you how do you get or do you get any kind of feedback from the Native Americans um, for your including that, enlightening us, educating us, etc.? Um, yeah. <laughs> In truth, the response to a person from my friends in the Ojibwe community and those Native readers who have bothered to either contact me or with whom I've had the opportunity to speak, uh, they have been complimentary in terms of how they believe I uh, deal with their culture. Um, I work very, you know, I have no Native blood in me whatsoever. And every time I sit down to write a story in the Cork O'Connor series, I'm painfully aware that I'm a white guy trespassing on a culture not my own. And so I work hard to get it right. I have lots of friends in the Native community now whose insights, perceptions, um, advice, suggestions have been so important in guiding me. Uh, a number of the stories in my Cork O'Connor series came from issues that my Native friends in the, in the uh, Ojibwe community particularly have enlightened me about. Um, Whenever I have a manuscript completed in the Cork O'Connor series, if deadlines will allow, I, I ask at least one, but usually two of my Ojibwe friends to read and vet the manuscript. So I haven't said anything that's too stupid or even worse, offensive. Um, I have been gratified so far with the reception that uh, my stories have received in the Native community. Cultural appropriation is an important topic that we all should be thinking about and t talking about. Um, and I know that there are those, I'm sure that there are those uh, Native readers and Native writers who believe that what I do is inappropriate. Uh, but, uh, but I do what I do, and I do it the best way I can. Question right over there. So you were talking earlier about uh, you know land and how important that is and, and getting it right, and I think you do with Minnesota. I can't remember the title of the book. It might have been Sulphur Springs down on the border. Yeah, Sulphur Springs. Yeah, and you did the same thing there, and I was wondering, did you go and hang out down on the border for a few <laughs> months and uh, to, to be able to get a feel for the land and, and the topography and all of the mines and everything that happened in that book? Yeah, that's a good question, and uh, absolutely. I, I firmly believe you can't write believably about a place unless you've actually been there. So uh, I knew that I wanted to set the, uh, 
Sulphur Springs in southern Arizona in, in July. So I went to southern Arizona in July, along with my wife and my 11-year-old grandson. Now, the, we, we rented a, a Jeep Cherokee, and so much of the research I wanted to do was on, um, a lot of it was about the routes that the refugees coming across the border take. And every morning then I would load up my wife and my grandson and our Jeep Cherokee, rented Jeep Cherokee, and take off across these, uh, along these god-awful back desert roads that were fit only for, you know, coyotes and roadrunners, just like in the cartoons. Um, and all along those, those uh, roads, there are these signs that say, I can't remember exactly how they read, but basically they say, uh, this is an area of drug trafficking. Basically, you could be murdered. <laughs> so I'm out there with my wife and my grandson. It's what you do for your art. But around every corner, there was um, a border patrol vehicle parked. And every time we passed a border patrol vehicle, or very often when we passed a border patrol vehicle, I would stop and get out and go over to talk to these guys because I wanted their perspective on what it is that you do, how do you feel about what you do. So the first uh, vehicle that I went over to to, uh, talk to the guy, this guy had this stone face. And it was really clear to me he absolutely didn't want me approaching his vehicle. And then my 11-year-old grandson came up beside me. And this guy looked at my grandson. And my grandson started asking him questions. And this guy just opened up. He told us, he told us what he does and, and, and how he did what he did. And most importantly, how he felt about what he did. Because my 11-year-old grandson was with us. And then uh, I interviewed uh, a number of people who worked with organizations that helped the refugees, put out water and clothing and food for them. And I'd set up a meeting with, uh, with these people, with one woman in particular. And when we sat down and my grandson was, she saw my grandson with us, she said, I, I don't really want to talk about this because there are things that are inappropriate for your grandson to hear. And then my 11-year-old grandson started asking her these questions. And they were really perceptive questions. And this woman just opened up to us and told us about her work and shared with us so much because my 11-year-old grandson was with us. It was one of the most extraordinary um, research experiences that I had. And, uh, and here's the funny thing. My grandson was 11 years old. He was out there with us, with me, talking to Border Patrol people, talking to these uh, folks who were helping the, uh, the refugees. We were interviewing uh, religious people out there, uh, leaders of churches, all that kind of thing. He's had all this kind of interesting experience. And when we got home and people asked him, so what did you do? He said, I found lots of Pokemon, um, <laughs> uh, you know, 11 years old. <laughs> He makes a good research assistant. Exactly. Though, <laughs> Question right over there. Yeah, thank you, Kent, uh, especially for the words that you were just referencing um, about cultural appropriation. And 
I'm fairly new to your Kirk O'Connor series um, and, and enjoying it very much. And I wanted to ask about um, in Wendigo Island, which for those who don't know is uh, very much has ties to Duluth in our immediate area here. Um, there, you really bring light to uh, the plight of missing and murdered indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit people. And I think both yourself as Kent and Cork O'Connor have in that book and and perhaps in further opportunity um, the real chance to bring more awareness about uh, the people that go missing, particularly women, girls, two-spirit people who are indigenous. And here in Duluth, Duluth as with us being mm-hmm. a port city, there's, there's a lot of traffic here. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to thank you for bringing attention to that. And I was wondering if there are other ways that you could bring that back up again in your series or perhaps in your other work to make sure that that um, continues to be something that perhaps a lot of these folks in this room, even as northern Minnesotans, I presume, might not know that much about. A few moments ago, you mentioned that you're a white guy, but you bring a unique voice that might not otherwise, um, other indigenous people may not be able to bring. You have a different audience. Are there ways you continue to bring that forth? Yes. For those of you who haven't read uh, Wendigo Island, um, it really is about the sexual trafficking of vulnerable Native women and children, uh, which was an issue I had no idea about until my friends in the uh, Native community um, told me about it and essentially encouraged me to write a story like Wendigo Island, hoping that we might make the what is really predominantly white readership um, more widely aware of that particular issue. I'm at work on the next Cork O'Connor novel. I have two more under contract. I'm I'm at work on a, a novel that I will call Spirit Crossing, and it is about MMIWG Two Spirits, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, Girls, and Two-Spirit People. Um, I was... I met this afternoon with, uh, I had lunch with one of my friends in the Ojibwe community who speaks uh, broadly across the country about that issue. Uh, I've been seeking all kinds of information from the people who are involved, um, both in terms of law enforcement, um, in terms of um, advocacy about the issue so that I can create a story that is accurate and emotionally compelling, again with the hope that we can make this issue more broadly known to a white populace that probably, for the most part, has very little knowledge of this issue. Although there is a... There was a... I haven't seen it, a television series in Alaska, set in Alaska. I've seen it, yeah. What's the series? It's called Alaska. Is it called... Okay. Yeah, Alaska Daily. She's a reporter for a newspaper. Which, as I understand it, the first season was very much about this issue. So it's it's beginning to be talked about a lot more. Minnesota, in truth, folks, is in as a state, is kind of in the forefront 
of uh, broadening the awareness and trying to, uh, both in terms of law enforcement, advocacy, um, be more responsive to this issue. Just a note here, Kent is going to sign books out in the lobby, so I just want to make sure you're sticking around for that in case you're looking at the clock. How about one one or two more questions? One right there. Okay. Um, this is about this tender land, and I wondered what led you to write that. And then do any of your characters ever get away from you and start <laughs> writing themselves? <laughs> The characters n- never exactly get away from me, but sometimes uh, they're ahead of me and I have to follow them. <laughs> this Tenderland was a story I'd wanted to write since I was fi- in the fifth grade. Uh, toward the end of that particular year, our teacher read to the class The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. She did it by reading half an hour after lunch every day, and I loved that book. It was this kid, and he was just like me, and he was out there on the Mississippi River having these really great adventures. And several years later, of course, I read Huckleberry Finn, which I loved even more. And across my entire career as a writer, I wanted someday to write a novel that would pay homage to Mark Twain that might be in its own way, um, an updated version of Huckleberry Finn. So that was the seed for uh, the story. Um, There were so many other things that I wanted to do with the story as well, though. I wanted to build in the theme of the spiritual journey. So for those of you who have read This Tender Land, Odie is on a spiritual journey. Um, I wanted to talk about families. How do we create families? Is it all about uh, bloodlines? Are there more dynamic elements involved in the creation of family? Um, I wanted to talk about prejudice. Uh, I wanted to talk about the historic brutalization of our native brothers and sisters in the boarding school system. Um, And this tender land just gave me this wonderful platform to accomplish all of the things that I wanted to accomplish and just write a story that I just fell so in love with myself. Something that typically doesn't happen for me as I create a story happened in this tender land. I fell so deeply in love with the four vagabonds at the heart of it. And because, as I said earlier, I really had no idea where I was going to take them or, or what ultimately the, the, how their journey would end, I found myself so often in the writing of the manuscript going, oh, please, dear God, let them end up in a good place, you know? <laughs> um, so there you go. Last question right down there. So you had mentioned that when you started. Obviously, you didn't know Cork was going to be a series. And it obviously became a quite long series. So when you go back and do new research, do you ever find something that said, boy, I wish I would have known that three or four books ago? And <laughs> do you ever find something that really surprised you? And if, it, if you did, what was it? I can't think of a specific thing that surprised me, but it's not uncommon for me to go back and go, I wish I had known this then. I would have been able to incorporate it in the story and make, make the story more effective in what I wanted to, to accomplish. And typically that will come from something that my, one of my Native friends has told me that opened my eyes in a way that, that they haven't been opened before. Um, 
And so, oh, I was trying to—I was trying to come up with a story to illustrate my point, and I haven't got one. <laughs> a storyteller without a story—is that <laughs> pathetic or what? <laughs> but yeah, it—it—it it, it has happened, um, and and actually fairly commonly. And I can tell you, I'm not the only one that this. Who, who experiences this particular phenomenon. Those of us who um, do our research and, and write our novels and then move on will often discover a piece, something that only has just recently come to light, and we'll go, oh, God, I wish I'd known that then. You know, that's the way it goes. You write the story you've got when you've got it, and then you move on. Thank you all for coming out to support Talking Volumes on the road. And Ken, thank you. It's been well, this wonderful has been to such talk a delight. You. For me thank too. you, Carrie. Thank you.